Well, hey, uh, welcome to the Not Quite Compassion podcast. This is episode number 26, entitled When We Disagree with Cody Whittington. And this one was special to me because he's a dear friend of mine, um, and we disagree about a lot of things. Uh, Cody would identify as being more conservative, uh, myself as being more liberal, and uh, we've had a long history of just having great and uh, difficult and passionate conversations where we walk away with different opinions. But we've been able to um, maintain a friendship not in spite of those differences, but um, I think because of those differences. And uh, so Cody and I talk about that kind of diverse unity, what that looks like, how to disagree well. Um, he talks a lot about it in the context of his church because he's a, uh, um, a lead pastor in a church in Montana. So um, good, lively conversation. Um, gosh, I just really thought I got a lot out of it, and, and I hope you will too. Uh, from the content, but also hopefully from the spirit of the conversation where we can be kind and humble and honest and uh, true about our convictions and our differences. Enjoy. of mine, uh, Cody and I met um, a couple years ago, right? Three years ago? Yeah, 2019. And uh, we both are a part of the same um, uh, cohort for uh, a doctorate in ministry with the emphasis on cross-cultural engagement. So pretty much the cohort, we just argue the whole time. <laughs> um, and I, I just, um, I felt like through our many arguments and also our many lunches afterwards where we'd laugh about it. And then our, our dinners where we'd have beers and laugh even more. Um, I, I, I just, I just grown to really, really appreciate you and respect you and admire how you navigate all of that. Um, and, and must coming from different perspectives. I, think, I just think you're just masterful at it. Um, so anyways, welcome Cody. Hey, thanks, man. Thanks for having me. And that definitely goes uh, both ways. <laughs> um, our conversations are always enlightening and challenging for me. I know that I know that to be true. So uh, thanks for being willing to have conversations. <laughs> That's yeah. super meaningful. Uh, tell, tell me a little bit about yourself or, or tell others, I guess, they're listening in. Yeah. Um, well, Christy and I, we've been married for, uh, it's probably a good place to start, is Christy and I have been married for uh, 11 and a half years. We've got three kids, a nine and eight and a one and a half year old. So there was some distance and you can kind of discern which one was the surprise, um, between, <laughs> between all of them. But, uh, yeah, Cove, Maggie and Audrey, um, we're just loving this stage of children right now. It's super fun. Uh, and so we're enjoying that. And so we live in uh, the Gallatin Valley in Southwest Montana, Bozeman area, and uh, currently, um, I pastor a church called the Table Community Church. Uh, we moved up from uh, the south to be a part of this little church plant and, uh, or to get it going and to see you know, what, what God might have in store uh, in this area. And so we've been going on about three years now. COVID, uh, uh, COVID-19 definitely threw, a, uh, threw us for a loop and unexpected turn, uh, but nonetheless, we're still moving along. And uh, the church itself is a little bit of a dynamic sort of gathering. We have uh, 
we meet around tables. So the name of the table is not so much liturgical as it is uh, practical. A lot of churches that are called the table are more in line with a liturgical emphasis. We're just, we're very practical. We just sit around tables. (laughs) And so uh, that's why we call it the table because our entire service is facilitated around those tables. And so with an emphasis on uh, diverse unity conversations and uh, uh, being okay with where people are in their spiritual process of following Jesus, asking questions about Jesus and what have you. So um, that's a little bit about my personal, relational, uh, vocational. And uh, like you mentioned, you know, you and I are both in the same cohort uh, pursuing our doctrine and ministry so that when we uh, complete, we can proudly put two uh, letters before our name and then maybe get some, uh, what did one guy in the, in the group say that he was going to get uh, bumped up to first class because he was a doctor now, just in case anybody on the plane was a doctor. <laughs> so look, looking forward to that. Looking forward to that. Yeah. Yeah. As a, as am I. <laughs> um, so I, I mentioned kind of in the intro, just that, you know, we've had, uh, our differences and, and, um, and we've walked away still holding oftentimes, I think our, our original opinions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I just, I, so I think I, I see you, I really admire, like I said, you're, that you're, I just see you really, really masterful at navigating. I think you do that probably as a job with the nature of the table and the way you guys have that set up where you kind of, I think you just kind of kick off with a topic. You share a few thoughts from the front, but then it kind of gets dispersed, right? To just the various different tables and people have conversations around those with some starter questions and stuff. Is that a pretty good summation of what things yeah, look like? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, we we have a, up front, we have about 30 minutes of just getting to know each other um, over a meal. So we share a meal every single week. And, uh, you know, people just come in. They sit at different tables every week, which is kind of nice. Sometimes they stay at the same table for a few weeks. But um, a lot of times they just mix it up. And so we spend about 20, 30 minutes getting to know each other. Um, I give a teaching. We have a couple of songs of just response and worship. And then that's kind of given the, given the topic enough time to simmer and to sit within our hearts. Um, and then we put it back to these individual tables and provide a couple of guiding questions, um, but certainly tell them, don't stick to this, just kind of see where the conversation goes. Um, so that would be a general flow. And then after that, we dismiss. And so, uh, it's a two hour long service. So it's longer than a, than a typical church service. Um, but we are trying to accomplish a lot. Mm -hmm. Wait, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, makes sense. I mean, it's just, you can't, I think the more moments you start to integrate, like a, a value of efficiency in that, <laughs> in that formula, you know, you, you probably ruin it because yep, I don't know if, if relationships are efficient, right? I don't know if mm-hmm. diverse unity, as you put it, can be efficient. Those are probably mm-hmm. mutually exclusive ideas. Yeah. Um, Usually if you're trying to put efficiency to diverse unity, your aim is actually uniformity and thought and get it in and out. <laughs> yeah, so. yeah. 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 Which is, yeah, you're right. It, it, you're stuck with just a, a three minute conversation in the foyer with a guy that mm-hmm. you forget his name as soon as you hit the parking lot. Right. Yeah. <laughs> that, I know. That's I know what efficient what, I know unity what, looks like. That's right. I know what John believes, but I don't know John. That's typically how those, uh, more efficient models work. I know yeah. what John believes, but I don't know John. And yeah, so that's I, part of the, pro- that's part of the problem. They understand what I know, but I don't feel known. All right. That's probably better way to put it. Yeah. 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 Um, what's been some of the, 
difficulties of that model of just trying to, as you put it, like create a diverse unity? What's been some of the, the wins? Yeah, you know, I think some of the wins that we have seen, um, we live in a strange area, and this is not atypical to uh, college town growing areas, but we have a section of our community that, uh, I guess, politically speaking, would be defined as the more liberal progressive area. And then we have a more rural area um, that's two, um, five miles outside of this uh, more liberal progressive area that is uh, diametrically different. I mean, they're very, very yeah. Republican. And so- It's like Eastern we, Washington versus uh, Puget Sound, right? Yeah, sure, yeah. And so, good way to put it. They, And then we have folks from both of these areas coming to the table. And then so our, a lot of our, uh, from the beginning, a lot of our challenge has been, how do you get these two groups to communicate, to understand one another, um, to sort of put Jesus at the center without absolving important differences. Um, and so that's, that's been part of the challenge. I think part of the win over the last few years is we've seen, we've seen a lot of people um, build bridges across deep differences um, around the good news of Jesus and being okay with, you know what, I disagree with you on this, you disagree with me on this, um, but we can still grab coffee. We can still sit down. We can still care for one another. Uh, you know, one example is I gave a, a, a discipleship course and it was about 12 weeks long. And uh, up front in the first couple of weeks, we talked about, hey, why are you here? What are you hoping to learn? And then we had two people in there that were on opposite ends of the political spectrum. And that surfaced night one. Uh, usually people who are pretty passionate about politics, they want to let you know that they're passionate about politics. <laughs> And so that surfaced during the first night of the course, and they were sitting together at the first night. But the second week, third week, fourth week, they sat further and further apart and then would start making jabs at one another uh, during this discipleship course. But by the end of week 12, uh, something had happened where they had stopped sitting at the opposite end of the table and have gravitated back towards sitting with one another. And then they ended up becoming pretty close, and they still hang out with one another they go uh, fishing with one another. They drop by each other's works. And, and so we've seen several stories like that where there's this weird, awkward uh, tension up front. But as, as time unfolds, you see this closeness uh, be regained. And so we've seen a lot of that. And so that's been a win for us, especially in this crazy political uh, climate right now. Any, any sort of unity is uh, a breath of fresh air. You know, I think I yeah. saw a couple of months ago, there was a picture of George W. Bush and uh, Michelle Obama hugging one another. It was a recent picture. Yeah. And the internet just went crazy with joy because there was some political distance that was just felt and closed um, by that picture. They said, why can't it be like this? And so there's this there's this cultural longing for that distance to be closed. And I think what's just been special is we're a small church, uh, but we've seen that we've seen that gap close in several spots. Well, in the you're right, I think there really is a cultural desire or, or um, a, a cultural like grief, I think, over the nature of just cynicism in our culture, mm -hmm. right? I, I I reflect on like why. TV shows like Ted Lasso or Schitt's Creek 
or so popular it's because they just there's no cynicism in it right and there's a purity to it there's a a sweetness there's humility and i think as a culture we're just like oh god that would be nice to have that again <laughs> you know yeah um when you talked about the those two people on polar opposites of this political spectrum kind of going apart and then coming back together i think that really physically um, embodies like that the difference between kind of peacekeeping and peacemaking, right? The peacekeeping yeah. would have been that they just stayed on opposite ends of the room and like look at the the nice unif- unified church we have. <laughs> like, it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You at all? <laughs> but we're in the same building, so we therefore must be unified in Christ or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the peacemaking part is actually coming like re- recognizing the differences, like going and moving through it, right? Not around it or stopping short as Messi mm-hmm. always says over and over again yeah and um, i think that's, that's important because you yeah. have the <laughs> you have this like common there's two there i guess there's like two ways of viewing cultural engagement and one is hey focus on what you have in common uh like let's just let's focus on what we have in common and then continue to do good work and i think that's important but then there's this other side where i think more in line with what you and i have been engaging and you and i have been experiencing is don't just focus on what's common, but surface those differences and then learn how to not only coexist, but thrive uh, in relationship with those differences. It's not just ignore them, focus on what you have in common so that you can keep moving. It's You're not really going to keep moving unless you deal with those differences. You know, it's those friendships that you hear about so much where it's like, oh man, we're good friends, but if we talk about politics, I'm afraid we would lose that friendship. Mm-hmm. that's a problem that's not friendship that's acquaintanceship yeah. and yeah uh you know so i think what you and i have been trying to uh, navigate in our cohort and in our in our relationship is that same kind of thing let's surface those differences and dialogue about them so is there a line there though that like i think about the way your the demographic of your your town is made up you said it's a very progressive liberal college town but then you have these outcropping you know rural areas um which is you know that's 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 the nature of our country in general too right there's a lot of that um divide but like when i think of like um ideas like christian nationalism right mm-hmm. that are like in my opinion it's just um i i i don't see it i don't i don't want to unify with that i guess because it's it's openly oppressing and, and wounding others and marginalizing others. So I, mm-hmm. to unify with oppression just means to be complicit with it, potentially. What do you think about that? Where, is there a line? What would, what would be your view on that? Not, I, know, I, I know you well enough to know your view on Christian nationalism. I just, what's your view on, <laughs> on navigating that a line if there is one? Yeah, no. Uh, I think we we acknowledge that there is there is times um, in the life of the church where um, where you have to draw a distinction. You have to say, "Listen, this is simply not a kingdom community." If this becomes the ethos, um, this is no longer. I, I mean, we we've had people. I've had people, you know, take me out to lunch or whatever, and as well meaning as they are there the ultimate aim is for me to become more political in my, uh, in my teachings, you know? And, uh, um, you know, so I, I think there is, there is a time when you have to say, okay, 
this is actually harmful. You're no longer you're no longer welcome in this in this practicing faith community, um, based on your disposition, based on the way you've treated others, based on the way that you uh, have interacted with others. Um, that's not okay. Uh, this is a this is supposed to be um, a community where people are free to ask questions, free to dialogue, free. And if you want to be heard, then you need to practice listening as well. So there's this give and take. Uh, so I do think there's a time where that where those conversations need to happen. And I don't think they happen enough. And the, I guess the evangelical language that we would use is a church discipline. Um, you know, that's the, but church discipline, typically you think about sexual morality or pornography or drug addiction or what you, you, you take those categories. But I think church discipline applies to Christian nationalism um, and to uh, <laughs> dealing with situations that are like that. And I think, but one of the things that I think we have to be cautious about is defining a large group, uh, for example, uh, to say Christian nationalism. A lot of people, a lot of people collapse that into just Republican uh, ideology. Yeah. Um, if you're if you're if you're an evangelical and you're a Republican, then you're in a lot of people's eyes, you're already uh, a Christian nationalist. And so that's where you have to be. Yeah, there's a time to draw the line, but you also have to define, and you also have to be patient, and you also have to ask good questions before you start drawing that line. Um, and in our culture, we like to draw the line and then define things. Um, but I think this, we live in a culture where we just collapse so many things into individual narratives that it becomes very, very hard to actually give people a chance to become, uh, to be redeemed, I should say. Mm. Uh, for example, at the table, we see We've seen several cases where people have stepped into our church. We're in a we're in a predominantly Dutch Reformed community as far as history goes. If you know the history of this area, it's really Dutch Reformed, um, and there's a lot of legalism that 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 is created in this area. But we've seen people step into the table, uh, coming in with an extremely legalistic bent. But when they are given the space to be uh, when they are given the space to be heard and then challenged. Um, not ever, not all of them stay, but we've seen quite a few people who have displayed this uh, legalistic, um, and at times what you might consider a Christian nationalistic approach um, to their framing of life or their worldview, whatever you want to call it, actually repent and become uh, a lot more moderate and a lot more disposition towards grace and how can I just become a better follower of Jesus. And so um, there is a line, but we have to ask a lot of good questions. And then we actually have to practice the issues of discipleship. We actually have to um, be willing to sit with a Christian nationalist and ask their, uh, provoking questions. And sometimes they respond positively, sometimes they don't. And if they don't respond positively, then yeah, there's that time where you draw the line. But we forget that Peter gave his sermon on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people got saved. That's a, good, that's a good Sunday by any stretch of the mean or word. Uh, but it was four to five years later when he is being approached by the Holy Spirit and by others about his sense of superiority to the Gentiles. Hmm. And so there's a disposition where recovery takes time. Recovery takes patience. Recovery takes a willingness to sit. Um, but Paul, even years later, would approach him in Galatia face-to-face, full-on confrontation and say, you're wrong. Your, your disposition of superiority is antithetical to the gospel. So Paul drew a line, and, but it seemed to be this reoccurring issue for Peter. Um, and here you have the first spokesman of the church. And so 
we do say there is a line to be drawn, but we should have a posture of patience and being willing to engage those people. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great, a really good outlook because you're right that that sense of redemption right for for others um if we are are if we're if our aim is to just um make some generalization in order to slap a label on and then in order to dismiss then there's no there's no space for redemption Mm -hmm. and i would assume yeah, there's no there's no desire from from my end for that person to to be redeemed, and mm-hmm. there's no space for that person even to be redeemed. Like I, if I was them, I wouldn't want to be. I wouldn't want redemption in that kind of space anyway, where I've yeah. already been labeled and dismissed. Um, I've I've um, well, in, in biblical terms, maybe I've I've is it quenched the spirit, right? Like I've, I've yeah. <laughs> stops the work of 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 what God could do in their lives potentially. You know, yeah. obviously that's bigger than that. But I think as someone who, who try, you know, who sometimes, you know, can, can be in that authority of position, you mm-hmm. could really do on, you know, you could, you have to care about the actual future of that person as well too. And it, it, when you say that too, it actually it reminded me of, of how kinds, like, cause you know me, like my spirituality has changed really significantly even in the in the in the time that you you've known me, you know, um, mm-hmm. going from, well, I mean, I wasn't exactly uh, a, a fundamental evangelical when you when you met me, but I was years earlier. So mm-hmm. so I was I was definitely in that camp. But now I you know I, I'm if I had to slap a label, I'm, you know, pr- pretty darn liberal, pretty pretty stinking progressive of a person, um, have a pretty open idea, inclusive idea of, of Christianity and spirituality. Um, so, but I, I definitely recall people in my life years ago that have this viewpoint that I do now that were far more patient and kind and sweet to me than I am with others today. And mm-hmm. that really haunts me. Like that's, that's just frankly unfair, right? Um, and that's even, to, that's unfair if I'm right about all this and I might not be, right? <laughs> but um but at the very least, I should be giving the same amount of grace and kindness and, and, um, and yeah, and, and patience to, to those um, where I would, you know, that, that, that I was given when I was in their place, right? Yeah. And that, that's, that's so important because, I mean, I, I mean, early in my ministry, I was told I was unapproachable. I was unable to, I was somebody who couldn't uh, handle disagreement. I wasn't somebody who, uh, and the thing is, I was, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Um, I enjoyed being the guy who uh, step, you know, step on people's toes or, or, or whatever. And so um, my, the last, the last 12 years have had to be really transformative. Um, And it's been through people like you said, who have expressed this crazy patience and kindness uh, towards me because I mean, patience and kindness is very convicting. When, when you're irate and someone doesn't respond in kind, it has a way of messing you up and make you go home and think about it. And um, it's no accident that I think uh, Peter of all people would write uh, God's <laughs> and Paul, God's patience and kindness leads us to repentance. And that's the, uh, that's the heart of 
being with people is patient and kind is the most persuasive thing you can do um, or be in order to uh, have a, some, some sort of prophetic credibility, um, you know, and it, but it doesn't remove being honest. Like, hey, Christian nationalism is from the pit of hell. That sort of belief, it doesn't remove being honest, but it's, it's the way in which you hold your convictions, the way you communicate it. And so if somebody's coming in on a Sunday uh, railing with Christian nationalism and they're, and they're visibly doing harm, I'm not going to sit around and just say, hey, let's talk about that. I'm going to say, hey, bro, you got to go. You got to go. But is but in the context of the Sunday service and life of the church, especially being a small church. And our, so our vision is more small churches, not more larger churches for, for reasons like this. Mm. It's easy. It's easier to contain and to observe mm. those sort of those sorts of situations. Is he doing damage or she is he or she doing damage to the community um, or are they kind of more contained in the space of discipleship? Because um, those are two different contexts. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, I have one guy. Uh, well, actually, this this same story has repeated itself probably four or five times over the last few years. Um, uh, one guy, we we had gone out uh, for dinner one night, and he was concerned that I wasn't uh, um, more vocal about issues such as immigration, issues such as pro-life, issues on sexuality and things like that. Um and so we kind of camped out on the pro-life issue because that's kind of always a, uh, a button for my friends on the right uh, to kind of dialogue around. And, and I remember him saying, like, you just you you need to be more bold with this. He goes, I know what you believe, but you need to be more bold with it. And I just I just said, OK, how do you want me to be more bold with it? I said, do you. Would you like me to talk about pro-life from this angle that Delaware, a blue state between 2017 and 2019 brought down abortion at a percentage level way more than Texas did by making access to healthcare a little more easy, easy for people. Um, I can talk about pro-life if you want me to talk about it from that angle too. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was no response. Um, you know, do you want me to talk about, I mean, cause I mean, we just went through several different cases where you're actually not asking me to t- talk about pro-life. You're actually, you're actually asking me to talk about your political persuasion Um, because if you're not willing to learn that the left actually has, uh, brought down abortion in certain cases, um, then you're not really interested in a dialogue. You're not really interested in Mm pro-life. Um, and so those conversations need to happen. Uh, and you and I, you and I've talked about this. I'm, I'm unashamedly in my, in my worldview, I guess, pro-life is such a narrow way to describe it, but from womb to tomb. Uh, there's a value of life that's uh, that I hold to. And so, but again, it's like, I'm curious what's going on in Delaware because obviously simply legislation doesn't do that, doesn't get the job done. Mm-hmm. But over in Delaware, here's a little blue state who brought it down. I think it was like 27%. Like wow. people who are, people who are pro-life should look over there and go, can we have a meeting? Can we talk? But that's mm-hmm. not the case. You know, that's just not, not how it goes. But anyway, so the point being is like, being patient and kind doesn't demand that you set aside those important conversations. Um, it actually demands that you have those conversations because you cannot grow in patience and you cannot grow in kindness mm-hmm. unless we're, di- we're, we're putting ourselves in positions where those things are needed to be exercised. Mm-hmm. So how much do you think, cause you and I got a, 
we didn't get into it. You actually, you made a really, really great point <laughs> uh, as you normally do uh, when you respond to me on Twitter. But I, um, I quoted David Dark by saying how pro-life is a scam. Um, and I, I, I know you, you know me well enough to know that, that, that you know, that's meant to be hyperbolic for, for reasons of, of why hyperbole can be effective. Um, yeah. But um, you, and of course you commented with some really good nuance that was much needed in the conversation. But I, um, I do, I, I think the, the part of it, the scam part of it that, that bugs me is it, it seems to be used as a trump card of like, it, I've been taken by how often it gets brought up in, and, and give me a sec, because I'll hopefully make this um, uh, equal, equally critical of both sides, uh, <laughs> if I can get there, we'll see. But okay, so um, I, I see pro-life as, as sometimes can be used as a trump card, because I'm always surprised when I'm in conversations with people online how we'll be, like I was talking with someone about, um, I think vaccinations. No, it was about Afghanistan. And out of freaking nowhere, um, she brought up um, abortion. And I was like, I literally wrote, I was like, I, I don't, I fail to see how this connects to Afghanistan. Can you help me? A sincere question. I don't get it. But I've had that happen a few different times with people. And I, and I can't help but get cynical and wonder like, are you just bringing that up because you've, find your morality you're, you're sensing your morality might be inconsistent and so you need to have to reassert some sense of moral supremacy and so you're you're relabeling the baby killer so you feel better about your position likewise i wonder if the left does that and when we label people racist like it's a similar kind of trump card of like i don't care what you say because ultimately you're racist and it's a way of just it's it it's those are effective both extremely effective way of dismissing any kind of conversation and dialogue and certainly any way of learning how does that land with you i completely yeah no it's a uh if that's a theory it's got to be pretty it's got to be pretty damn close to fact i i i uh I, i wholeheartedly agree with you i think those are trump cards that are used to one up uh against your conversational uh, partner. And yeah, I mean, I, I can't speak for the left. I can't speak for the right entirely, but I, I mean, I, that in my, uh, in my circles, that's exactly what I've seen. I've seen, Hey, let me throw my gotcha out there, yeah. make you feel less than, and then therefore I look morally superior. And actually the aim is no longer reconciliation. The aim is no longer dialogue. It's superiority. And that's that becomes the landing spot. Who holds the better argument? Because if I can hold a better argument, then I'm actually more intellectual than you. I'm, I feel more research than you. I feel so it becomes a superiority complex. Um, it becomes moral grandstanding, um, uh, a little bit different than virtue signaling, but wanting to be seen as somebody with moral character and fortitude and and conviction. Um, and so, yeah, the especially the uh, the abortion on the right, the collapsing the collapsing of everything into a racism now this i i like that because the, it, it, you've drawn out two important points on both sides and have said like these cannot be used as trump cards if you're actually gonna have a productive dialogue and that's just i, I agree 100 with you um and i think a lot of it too is uh being able 
to move beyond uh, the caricatures that exist of each of the each party, whether you're Republican, Democrat, liberal, whatever, um, like the baby killer mindset or, uh, you know, from the left, don't put your religion on me. Well, you have a very big problem if if this the pro-life situation I, again i don't like even the term you know me i don't like that terminology of just yeah. simply pro-life it's way well, too narrow like about, to, yeah and you yeah, typically, yeah, when yeah. we say pro-life we're usually people are usually meaning pro-birth yeah pro-birth you know of white, so, of white babies <laughs> yeah yeah and uh, and like the thing is is like you, we are in we are seeing an increasing amount of young people who are uh pro-life and they are non-faith based. They have, they have no religious affiliation. Um, and so this is not simply an issue of a religion and that character, that's a caricature of the entire argument. And though it, though it has a comp- a component of faith, you have, you have to wrestle with young people are increasingly pro-life, but they're also increasingly non-religious. And so there's a conversation to be had there. Um, and so, but that's just one example of a, of a, looming caricature that often uh gets collapsed into oh you're just some evangelical uh pushing a narrative or whatever the case may be so you brought up gotcha statements and you've done some writing on that um and that's just um that's had a that's had a really really huge impact on me i just want you to know that like hmm. um i i've tried really hard to make it an additional filter in my correspondence online with people because it just, it's just so damn easy to, to default to that, you know, why do you think it could, I mean, for the listener, can you describe what, what we were talking about when we say gotcha statements? Oh yeah. And then, and then why is that so easy to default to that? Well, I, I, you might be referring to that presentation where we talked about going from memes to meaningful conversations where, yeah. you know, we post a, we post a whole bunch of memes that were uh, one liner gotcha statements, you know um, you know, if you voted for Trump, you're a racist, homophobic bigot, um, or, you know, if you voted for Biden, you're a baby killer or, you know, the, the, the very things that you were just talking about those one liners. Um, so that's what we mean when we say those gotcha statements. It's just finding it's relying on memes as your primary Avenue for, conversational clout <laughs> um yeah. especially online uh you well, know we it's, all just, them, it's all just parroting like literally the nature of yeah, the yeah. Is you copy pasted it <laughs> yeah yeah they so it's not actually even your original thought you just yeah yeah and then they're typically again they're just wide caricatures and i think the reason why we do this is because we're lazy um ultimately i think that's a huge component of it uh to share something is easy to research something is more complicated um, to share something online and walk away, go back to your office is easy to make a phone call and say, Hey man, I saw that you posted that you are, um, anti-vaccine. I, I really just want to understand, or, Hey man, I saw that you got the shot. Um, could you help me understand like what drove you to that decision? It's just so much easier to say, to drop a meme and say, boom, I'm done. I've done my part. And then can, and then consider it like a witness, like pretending like you've done something productive by putting out a meme. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but the, uh, it's like, I the, think a lot of, <laughs> it's like the online version of this, uh, speak the truth in love asshole. You know? Oh <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. What you're not speaking, you're not even speaking truth and it's definitely not in love. You're just an yeah. ass. Like you're just being a jerk. Yeah. And that's exactly <laughs> it. You know, and there's this, uh, you know, and, and again, it comes back to do it like being willing to do the research. I think the research indicates that 
not only do we not understand the other side, whichever side we're on, we don't understand the other side. We also don't even understand ourselves. And so there's yeah. a uh, there's a book I read uh, called Moral. Uh, oh, it's called Grandstanding: The Use and Abuse of Moral Talk. It's by uh, some philosophers, Justin Tozzi and Brandon Warmke. Uh, but in there, they just cite a whole bunch of research. And one of the one of the interesting components they brought out was that uh, was that point was we talk past one another. We create caricatures that are memes, basically. And this is my my understanding. It's not exactly what they said, but this is my unfolding of what they were saying. Was we establish memes that are actually caricatures or one liners that are actually caricatures, and then we address the caricature missing the substantive argument that's actually there and then therefore we're never persuasive we have no ability to actually persuade people because all we're doing is addressing caricatures with which the person who holds a position disagrees with from the beginning uh, we so we misframe an argument and then go after the misframed argument and miss their argument entirely and so for example um researchers asked uh um republicans and democrats this question of how how many Republicans make over two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year? Well, forty four percent of Democrats, uh, or or uh, Democrats said forty four percent of Republicans make two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year. Forty four percent. That's their understanding of the wealth in the in the Republican circles, which contributes to the narrative of you're you're just you're just a bunch of rich wealthy white people who don't want to give anything away, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so 44% Lots, of liberals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you just, you just 44% of Dems, uh, or Dems say 44%, excuse me, of Republicans make 250,000. Um, but here's the problem. Republicans don't do much better. They were asked the same question and they came back with 33%. They think that 33% of their own party makes $250,000 a year. Wow. The real number is 2%. Oh, wow. So... Again, Republicans don't know themselves on this issue and many others. But another example is uh, the same research group asked the same people, um, what percentage of Democrats do you think are LGBTQ plus? Uh, Republicans said 38 percent of Democrats are LGBTQ plus, um, which helps drive the narrative that a lot of Republicans believe about yeah. LGBTQ. Uh, but Democrats didn't do much better. They put it at 29%. The real number is six. And so not only, not only do we not understand our, our conversational partner or opposition or the other side, we don't even understand ourselves. How in the world are we positioned in a place to have a thoughtful dialogue if we don't even understand ourselves, if we don't even know our own positions, if we don't even have any clarity on who we are? And so, so how's that, how's that work out in the, in the micro, like on the individual level? I love that example in the macro how have you seen that play out in your own life or in people in your congregation on how they don't even know themselves? You have to put yourself in positions where, where you have to listen to somebody else. It's that it, to me, it's that simple. It's, it's, and this is why we do what we do at the table. And it, just to be clear, we don't have political conversations every week around the table. I can't, Hey, that's not the nature of the church is to leave every week pissed off, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, but uh, I think one of the things that we have to do, one is we have to ask ourselves the honest questions like, what do I believe? Why do I believe it? And you've helped me do this. You've helped me get to the place where I'm like, OK, I need to actually be able 
to get to the root of why I believe what I believe is a lot of what I believe just simply culturally shaped because I've just, I've just bought into it or how much digging am I actually doing? Is there actual true theological reason for what I believe that leads to human flourishing or the good life or whatever? And so it's really self-critical evaluation of why we believe what we believe. Um, and then being willing to ask others, um, how they've arrived at their positions or their, or their conclusions, because, what the research indicates, again, is here's the caricature. Let me address that. And so if you're sitting with somebody who's had, who's had an abortion uh, and you go in with the caricature of baby killer, um, rather than hearing the story that uh, my daddy and my boyfriend made me do it, hmm. um, that changes the conversation a little bit. Yeah. You know, and that's so for me, it comes down to if you if you if you just put yourself into positions where you're, where you're required to listen um, or where you are willingly listening, proximity, proximity uh, helps us grow in compassion, helps us grow in understanding. Um, but proximity is not enough. You can mm -hmm. be proximate and still be divided. I mean, you can get a whole bunch of people uh, in a room and still be divided. So proximity is important, but it's not enough. Um, you need to actually be able to empathize and understand and be able to relay their story, their experience back to them in, in such a way where they say, yeah, you've, you've captured, that's more than active listening, active listening. So I'm hearing you say, no, mm -hmm. it's empathetic, it's empathetic listening. It's, it's being broken with them, not just for them, but with them and to say, holy crap, that's heavy. That's like, that's really heavy to experience. And, and evangelicals, we don't like this because it makes us, it makes us think about our positions, to be honest. Mm -hmm. It makes us think about, man, if the church has done so much harm in this particular area, do I need to rethink my position? And we don't like that. We don't like that at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. L taking time to listen to the story behind the opinion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because people have, people have arrived at their opinions and positions and beliefs, um, on a lifelong journey of experience, uh, various experiences and, um, why the church needs to also be more patient with people who are asking questions is because the language Jesus uses, you've been born again. Do you know what that means? That means you have to learn to talk, walk, act, think, live hmm. now, all over again. You're going to be like a bumbling, stumbling child for a long time, not having a lot of answers that no, you're tripping over things. You're, it's just it's just an awkward, clumsy stage, and we're again as evangelicals, we're not. Uh, I say us because I'm in that camp. We're not really good at that. Mm. We're not. We and we would prefer the caricature um, and sit comfortably in the pew. Well, and so, there's there's a baked in humility into that description of being born again, as opposed to the transactional consumeristic version, right? It's like I got my ticket to heaven. Sucks to be you. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, you know that can somehow be baked into to that the arrogance. Like it's it's a it's a humility I, I hear you describing our, mm -hmm. of a posture of how we see others, right? As or as, yeah. as as Philippians put it, the thinking of others is more important than ourselves, right? Yeah, and you got to read. I mean, that's another thing you and I talked about this a lot. We have to read read widely. We mm -hmm. have to. I mean, that that's part of the problem. Is so you get uh, you get conservatives who get their facts from uh, Ben Shapiro or Candace Owens. And then you get your 
Democrats who get their facts from Don Lemon or wh- whoever. Uh, mm-hmm. Take your you know person on the left who is kind of a political voice, and and but what often happens is these individuals are framing whatever you want to call facts within their perceived narrative, and yeah. and then they're getting to tell you what these facts mean. But unless you're willing to actually read the extensive research rather than just listening to the sound bites and 30-minute episodes, um, we'll never arrive at the place where we are actually understanding ourselves and understanding the other. Um, you know, for example, I've, there's a lot of people who on the right who have wildly misunderstandings of what we mean when we say white privilege, and, but it's based on the caricatures that have been presented at the at the at the uh, media level. Um, we have hard hard time understanding systemic racism, systemic injustice because of the way it's been framed by the voices who primarily influence. So unless you turn off the damn button and you actually grab a book and start looking into these things, um, we'll never understand our own positions and never understand the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you, how do you personally, um, remain open to being wrong and being persuaded in um in allowing another opinion other's opinion to affect you i look at my track record <laughs> what do you mean just areas i've been wrong multiple multiple times and there's got to be a possibility yeah. where i'm wrong again um you know, and I think that there are some things like it's going to take a lot for somebody to convince to, to convince me that Jesus is not Lord. You know, there are certain convictions. I think this is a yeah. the thing. Like to to be open doesn't mean to be absent. Of yeah, your, of or your, about your uh, yeah yeah or half-hearted so or like oh whatever you know like yeah it's, that's not at all what what we're saying yeah yeah Agreed. yeah and so I'd like it's there not, are it like I'm still sure means the whole conviction yeah yeah and so I think like it's. It, Openness doesn't require that the center of who you are be on the chopping block every conversation you have. Um, you know, I think that, for example, with, I mean, I've, I've had to wrestle with and make changes in the way I view things related to uh, sexual ethics, sexuality, gender. Um, I've had to rethink the way I've thought about uh, yeah, systemic racism, white privilege. I, you know, I've, I've had to... Um, I've had to journey through those things slowly and painfully um, to try to figure out what's what. But at the end of the day, like if, if you're presented with, with good, with good research and good stories, I think like you can't draw a distinction between, or you can't just keep separate um, accurate information and personal narrative because those things, I think a lot of times those things really fit well and you need both components. And, uh, um, at some point you have to make a decision about, okay, I'm either right on this or I'm wrong on this, or I don't know what I just need to keep studying. Um, but what I, what often happens is we, we encounter positions that we disagree with and they make us angry. But what happens psychologically is it causes us a lot of times to buckle down on that position when we're angry. Mm-hmm. Um, this is just a psychological fact when we're first yeah. encountered with something we want to double down on it. And so mm-hmm. I've had some friends and mentors, uh, you being a, one of these friends too, and uh, help me realize that if, if 
anger and resistance is my first reaction. I need to push through that. I need to sit through that. I need to move through that and get behind the fear that is actually there of, of what does it mean if I'm wrong? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've had to go through that journey multiple times <laughs> over uh, coming out of the, the home and backdrop and faith tradition that I'm in. I think, um, I wonder if you would agree with this. I think one of the, the, the starkest differences in what you're doing at the table versus what I see in, in frankly, much um, of the rest of evangelicalism is, um, well, evangelical churches, I should say, because mm-hmm. I think there's a distinction there. That's not fair to you. Um, is that many people, I think many churches advertise you know, that here we are, we have the corner market on truth. And, and if you come here, you'll get, you'll become more certain about where mm-hmm. you, who you are and what you believe. And, and then you'll be able to engage the world um, better because you'll be more, more certain of, of, of your beliefs. And it also feels really, really good on a neuroscience level to be in a room around a bunch of people that believe the same thing you do and think the same thing you do and look the same and act the same and vote the same. Um, and, and, and so there's a, there's a comfort in that certainty. And, and I think we've talked about this, like, it's very much like, a like a, an addict coming to get another shot in the arm, right. Of like another dose, another hit. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's me being framing it, uh, like, a, like an a-hole. Um, so there's probably kinder ways to frame it, but I, <laughs> but I think what I, what I, what I find most intriguing about what you're doing and I know there, you know, and I'm not putting your church as something that's perfect or whatever, but I do think philosophically people aren't going there to be certain. They're going there to be changed and mm-hmm. be transformed. And that has to entail some sense of, I used to think this and now I think that, or as Jesus put it, like, but you've heard it said this, but now I tell you that, right? There, mm-hmm. there has to be some, um, some change of not just like our, our, my theology to something more correct, but like my change of personhood, my change from arrogance to, uh, to humility, my change of how I used to view a Republican or a Democrat, you know, it, a real mm-hmm. true inward humility developing inside of me. Yeah. Yeah, dude, I, I think that's, no, I don't think you were framing it like a, like an asshole or anything. I think that would, I think you're, you're picking up on, the propositional nature of many churches, not all, but many like here is a couple of uh, intellectual truths uh, that will make you feel better uh, that make you feel certain. And then therefore go. And if you've read, if you've read people like Justin Lee's book torn, or you've read several other folks who, who have grew up in the church and were taught that and found that to be completely useless out in society, this uh, here's the truth, therefore take it. I mean, a lot of that's a shift from modernity to postmodernity. All, all, all of like, there's so many different layers as to why things, why communicated, why communication, and uh, thought process have t- changed. But ultimately, I think that that model is increasingly becoming irrelevant. Um, you know, I tell our, I tell our church and people who come to the church, hey, nothing we teach as a church on the hot button issues will probably surprise you. Um, the way we hold and the way we navigate those might, 
Uh, we've had people leave our church because they feel like we are too liberal or they feel we are too conservative. Um, and uh, we have several rumors about our church out in the area, just to, that just, uh, you know, we're the progressive liberal church, which, you know, you know, I, you know me, <laughs> you know, like that is the, that is not even close. Uh, but the, uh, but what people are feeling is a discomfort with sitting with the other. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, when it makes them uncomfortable, they have to put some kind of language to it and it's easier to distance and to get closer and figure out why. Um, and so, yeah, we've had people leave because we're too liberal or too progressive or whatever language you want to put to it. But, um, I've just found that like the, the church, um, the church doesn't have a lot of prophetic credibility right now because the propositional truths that we put out there have shown an experience not to hold much weight, um, within the life of the church. It takes sexuality, for example, uh, to, to, or one, one point that you and I have talked about our disagreements on at length. And, uh, but the church faces a challenge, a cultural challenge. And the, the one, simply we don't have the prophetic credibility. We, we prop, we propped up this proposition that we hold this extremely important value of sexuality and, and how to shape sexuality in alignment with theological conviction. And so we, we put this proposition out there of what we think is right and true. Um, but what culture is seeing now is the, the true, the true lived experience of that's bankrupt. I mean, you have, you, in a lot of ways, not entirely, but in a lot of ways, because we're telling you, Hey, here's a, here's a sexual ethic that we think is important to, to the good life. But then increasingly people find and are, people are seeing the exposure of sexual abuse, um, uh, sexual, uh, promiscuity, lack of fidelity, lack of like you were seeing, we, we say, Hey, this has been important to us, but actually we've covered up more sexual abuse. We've covered up, um, just, we, we're just, we're just not healthy in that way. Mm-hmm. And so I remember this Nashville statement was, was, uh, put out by a lot of That's conservative right. they, they lashed out with, uh, but, but you're still baby killers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But the, but the Nashville <laughs> statement came out and it was basically reaffirming what conservative even theologically conservative, there's a difference, of course, between theological, political conservative, but theologically conservative churches have believed about sexuality. And a lot of them were SBC folks. Um, and it came across my desk and I didn't sign it because I just don't think that, uh, I don't think we need more statements. <laughs> um, but the, uh, but it was only months after the national statement was released where sexual scandals and sexual abuse blew up within a couple of denominations, especially a lot of them were leading signers on this, on this document. And so it's like, we have no prophetic credibility right now to say that these propositional truths are good because our lived experience as a church has shown the opposite. Mm-hmm. And so we have this issue of credibility that is severely lacking. Our, uh, our lifestyle has not seemed to be persuasive um, or meaningful. Uh, we have this issue of, of clarity. This is something you and I've talked a lot about a lot is we put out a propositional truth, but inside of the church, we're oftentimes not clear about what we believe. Yeah. Um, and this does more damage than it does harm than it does good. You know, I, I, I respect the tension of, I want to communicate to you what I believe, but I also want to create space for you. I respect and know that tension well, but the church does far more damage when we're not clear. And we're not clear anymore. <laughs> we just we just don't have a position of clarity. Um, 
And then we lack severely in the compassion department too. We've, um, we've used those propositional truths to remain distant, um, to, uh, one of the reasons why I didn't sign this national statement that came out a few years ago was because there has been no public collective statement apologizing for the harm the church has done towards the LGBTQ community. Um, that's, that's crap. That's crap. I don't care about what, I don't care about another statement right now. Um, you've had several individual churches that have discussed this, acknowledged it and are trying to find a different way forward. Um, but before we start petitioning a cross-denominational statement, like where's that cross-denominational apology? And it's non-existent. And so we had that. So the way we, we, the way we framed it at our, at the church that, that I pastor right now is um, we face a prophetic credibility problem. We face a uh, clarity problem. We face a uh, compassion problem. And all of that's because we have simply relied on like what you said, here's a couple of propositional truths there. Mm -hmm. So. Because those, because we're, because, because from, from, because they're still not thinking about thinking of the others more important than themselves. They're, they're putting those propositional truth statements out to feel better themselves, <laughs> not, yeah. not because they think the other person's more important. Like yeah. it's, it's, it's still, ah, gosh. Yeah. It's still ultimately a narcissistic view of spirituality. You know? yeah, like and ulti- this is a bi- ultimately it's about you and how right you are. And it is a bipartisan issue. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. and that's, that's, that's the thing is like this injection. We all have our organizations where we go back to, to get our injection. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And no, there's a reason why not, I'll, I'll, I'll listen to Rachel Maddow podcast tomorrow. Right. Cause it makes mm-hmm. me feel good. Yeah. I have yeah. to own that. And why yeah, is and that, a, you know, having the courage to look behind it. And it's not a bad thing to be around people who, ha- who hold your convictions, who share your convictions. Um, like that's not a bad thing. Yeah. Um, and we need those spaces where we can take a breath, where we can just be ourselves, or we can be in a space where we can encourage one another and we can think through uh, things together. But that cannot be the only space in which we live. But this tendency, that, that injection that you're talking about, that's a, it's not a political, it's not a liberal conservative, it's a, it's a human thing. Yeah, And absolutely. so it's how do, we, how do we navigate that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's another episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And for people that don't go, don't go to church, they'll find their injection elsewhere, right? It's we yep. still it's a human thing, and we gotta we gotta each individually address it um, to become more human. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Thanks, man. I really enjoyed our conversation as always. I miss you. Do what? I miss you, dude. I miss you. Yeah, man. As COVID's kept us apart, haven't been able to see you. And, yeah. Um, you know, I wish we would have been able to uh, be physically present in class another time but uh yeah me but yeah too. man I'm, I'm i miss you too I, I use our friendship quite often when i'm talking with people about uh people in my life who challenge me in a gracious uh kind and open manner and your your name comes to the top of the list so oh same same yeah. on the other end dude so grateful for you yeah you, you too man well thanks cody for being with us and uh thanks thanks again yeah like likewise listening to the Not Quite Compassion podcast. 
It'd mean the world to me if you took the time to rate uh, and review, leave a little comment on iTunes or Spotify about the podcast. Tell us what you like about it. And it really helps with the ranking of it and for more people to be able to find it. Um, also, if you have any questions about the podcast or suggestion or something, um, go ahead and just email me. It's uh, Kyle Dean Reynolds at gmail.com. Simple as that. So K-Y-L-E-D-E-A-N-R-E-Y-N-O-L-D-S. Kyle Dean Reynolds at gmail.com. Uh, or you can always reach out to me on the socials uh, at, at Kyle Reynolds on Twitter. Thanks. Mm-hmm.